Supernatural in Central Florida. It's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 135th episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And on today's episode, we are bringing you a location that was suggested to us by our listener, Janet Shepard. And we had research assistance from April Rogers Crick. And Janet really challenged us with this one. This is the Tavernic Lighthouse. A couple of things. First of all, it's in France. And so there's a lot of French words involved today. And you know that oh, Denise and I no. are a bit challenged when it comes to pronunciations. French is not our second, third, fourth, fifth, or sixth language. <laughs> so forgive us if we have some mispronunciations today. And this was not only a challenge because of the language, but also because there's not a lot out there about this lighthouse. We searched and searched to find out who built it, what it was built from, all of those little details that we like to get into. And there was really nothing out there. But I do guarantee you that this is probably going to be one of our creepier podcasts because this place is not only incredibly haunted, it is saturated in legend and lore that goes back to the Celtic time. And we're talking about a place that drove men crazy. So they did some crazy things, killed themselves. This really is the hub of death over in that area. Oh, good, because I thought it was going to be creepy because of my pronunciations of the French words. <laughs> <laughs> well, for any of our French listeners, it might be a little creepy for them to hear that. Yeah, so for the record, when we were in New Orleans, they were having fun driving through the town having me try to pronounce French signs, French words, and they thought it was great sport because I, I slaughter all of them. So I tried, I've looked up pronunciation, I ask for forgiveness from anybody who is going to listen to me. Just as an example, Denise, there's a certain dish that you had ordered. The proper way to say it is etouffee. How did you say it? I wanted some good old etouffee. <laughs> <laughs> so that just gives you a little bit of taste there. Before we get into talking about the lighthouse, we do want to point you over at our website, historygoesbump.com. Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And we did get an email from one of our listeners over in Germany. I sure hope that I get the name right. My name is York, and I am a listener from Germany. I discovered the podcast just a few months ago, but I caught up on all the episodes since then. I thought I might send in these two little things, one being my story about a nightmare premonition I had as a child, and the second one is my visit to a supposedly haunted, cannot confirm that unfortunately, abandoned graveyard on the Seychelles Island. What I've done is I've saved his nightmare premonition for us to use in our Halloween episode, but I am going to share with you the visit to the graveyard. The name of the cemetery is Bel Air. Right away, I will admit that I did not encounter anything myself the day I took these photos, but the atmosphere at the place was very creepy nonetheless. Back in 2008, I went on vacation to the Seychelles in the Indian Ocean, about halfway between Madagascar and India. 
I stayed on the main island, Mahe, very close to the capital, Victoria. On my last day, after packing my stuff, I had some time to spare, so I asked the receptionist of the hotel if there was anything unusual to see here, something that tourists of a tropical paradise normally don't care about, and she said there was an old abandoned graveyard that was supposedly haunted. I got into a taxi right away and told the driver to get me there. He replied that I should go at night, but as I had just a couple hours left before I had to go to the airport, that was impossible. Bel Air Cemetery is a historic site in Seychelles and the first official burial ground to be opened on the main island of Mahe soon after the establishment of the French settlement in the late 18th century. Important historical milestones, the cemetery's tombs, vaults, and shrines contain the remains of some of the island's most famous personalities, such as Corsair Jean-Francois Houdoul and the nine-foot giant Charles Dorothée Savy, poisoned at the age of 14 by neighbors fearful of his height. Another character whose remains lie within the cemetery is the mysterious Pierre-Louis Perrault, claimed by some to be the son of Louis XVI, who fled the French Revolution and took refuge in Seychelles. It is also a final resting place of a son-in-law of Hugh de Quincy. Oh my God, I really don't know how to say that. A magistrate, an acting civil commissioner, and a district magistrate who lie among other recently rediscovered graves once covered by the Great Landslide of 1862. Furthermore, some of the island's earliest prisoners and deceased pirates are said to be buried there. The whole place was overgrown, the graves partially damaged, tombs opened or broken. I didn't go inside any. I'm not crazy and didn't want to risk anything to happen that could make me miss my flight home. So I just took a few pictures. The tombs were all empty, though, so the bodies had either been stolen throughout the years or simply excavated. The final resting places had definitely been tampered with. What made the whole place even spookier was the palm trees and leaves waving in the wind and the eerie cracking sounds from the big patch of massive bamboo that was growing right behind the graveyard. And we know exactly what that sounds like. And yeah. it is pretty scary. Yeah, I love the sound, but it is. It's like, oh, my gosh. Especially what if, is you're, that? And if you're in a graveyard. Like I mentioned, I didn't notice anything of the supposed hauntings myself, but I totally believe that there's something. The whole place was just too spooky. And then uh, he attached several pictures, which were very, very cool. And what I might do is actually put them in today's notes for the lighthouse so you guys can check those out as well. It was a really cool looking cemetery. We want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Sarah. Hey, Sarah. Sasha. Hey, Sasha. Asia. Hi, Asia. And Lynn. Hey, Lynn. Denise, you ready to go to the lighthouse? I definitely am. All right, let's do this. You're listening to a podcast that's entirely listener-supported. Companies don't care about history, ghosts, and especially you. So why would we let them advertise on our show? Consider becoming an integral part of our production team today. Mark your calendars for July 24, 2016 at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. That's when we'll be hosting our next virtual meetup for executive producers. History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to This Moment in Oddity. The skeleton of a woman measuring about 4 feet 9 inches tall and about 45 years old was found in a cave in Israel. The cave had served as a burial place for around 28 people, and this diminutive woman seemed to have been the most important figure of the group. She was more than likely a shaman, and this was surmised because of the objects found buried with her. They included the bones of several animals, a wild cow tail, an eagle's wings, martin skulls, a leopard's pelvis, a boar's forearm, and a human foot. 
Even more fascinating is the ritual that was involved with burying this woman some 12,000 years ago. Archaeologists were able to piece together the six-step ritual based on items found in the grave. The first step entailed preparing the burial pit. An oval shape was marked out in bedrock, and then the bedrock was broken up and pulled out. The floor and the walls were then covered with mud. The second and third steps added on more preparation for the grave. Limestone blocks were used to line the pit along with unique artifacts like tortoise shells and gazelle horns. The artifacts were then covered with a layer of ash. The body was placed in the pit during the fourth step in a squatting position. Tortoise shells were placed under the head and pelvis. Animal bones were placed around the body. Stage 5 was a burial feast and the garbage from the feast was thrown into the pit, which included more animal bones and up to 86 tortoise shells. It is estimated that nearly 55 pounds of meat were eaten at the feast. The sixth and final step was sealing the pit with a triangular-shaped piece of limestone. This shaman's grave proves the theory that burials were an elaborate ceremony even several thousands of years ago. This way of paying respect to the dead is interesting and quite odd. Scared yet? <laughs> this day in history. This day in history is by April Rogers Crick. On this day, July 8th in 1947, a mysterious flying disc was reported to have crash landed in Roswell, New Mexico. The headline of the Roswell Daily Record read, RAFF Captures Flying Saucer on Ranch in Roswell Region. A local rancher named Mac Brazel found a mess of metallic sticks held together with tape, chunks of plastic and foil reflectors, and scraps of a heavy, glossy, paper-like material in his sheep pasture. No one was able to identify the objects. Brazel called Roswell Sheriff. The sheriff in turn called officials at the nearby Roswell Army Air Force Base. Soldiers called to the scene, fanned out across the field, gathering the mysterious debris and whisking it away in armored trucks. On July 9th, an Air Force official clarified the newspaper's report. He claimed the alleged flying saucer was only a crashed weather balloon. But to anyone who'd seen the debris or the photographs from the newspaper, it was clear that whatever this thing was, it was not a weather balloon. Some believed, and still believe, that the crashed vehicle had not come from Earth. They argued the debris must have come from an alien spaceship. The history goes bump. A tiny, uninhabitable, rocky island sits off the coast of Pointe du Ra in western Brittany, France, in the Ra de Seine. This island is home to Tevenik Lighthouse. Lighthouses are meant to prevent deaths by guiding ships through dangerous waters. But Tevenik has been the scene of death many times.
And even before the lighthouse was built, local folklore tells of a history of death and haunting on the island. Legend says that Tevanik was home to Anku, the great name for death himself. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Tevanik Lighthouse. Brittany was known as Amorican Peninsula in antiquity, and its rich history is evidenced in the numerous Neolithic monuments found there. The standing stones of the region have perplexed historians for centuries. The burial chambers predate the Egyptian pyramids by a long time. These chambers are similar to the mounds we see in America, and they consisted of a dolmen or stone chamber where the bodies were placed, and then they were covered with an earthen mound called a tumulus. The strong Celtic culture that grew here was subjugated when the Romans came. Caesar ruled Brittany with an iron fist. As Roman rule faded, people immigrated here from Wales, Ireland, and England, and it became known as Little Britain, or Brittany at that time. In the 17th and 18th century, the French monarchy took control of Brittany. Today, the area enjoys good relations with Great Britain. And we've included in the show notes, there's a tiny little map here to kind of show you where the different lighthouses are in this region. And it will give you a good feel of just how dangerous and perilous Tevenik is where it's located. Yes, and I'm just looking at all the little lighthouses and wanting to go get stamps in my passport book for lighthouses and all of them. Yeah, I don't think we're going to be stopping at this one. (laughs) Oh, darn. (laughs) It's not very accessible. Let's put it that way. Actually, I saw a video on YouTube and you can kayak out to the island. So it is accessible. Did you see the waves that hit that island that it's on? Yep. Were people on regular kayaks or sport kayaks? They were on, they had helmets on and stuff just in case. (laughs) I think if you saw the waves, you'd think twice. Point du Rai is one of Brittany's most popular natural sites. The charming beauty of this area inspired Victor Hugo to include it in his works. Cliffs tower above perilous waters. The Bay de Trespasses, or Bay of the Dead, holds the remains of numerous shipwrecks that were overpowered by the currents here, which are some of the strongest in Europe. It only makes sense that this spot would need a lighthouse. But the spot chosen to build the lighthouse was remote, on a rocky outpost that was battered routinely by waves. The light was lit here for the first time in 1875. The first lighthouse had a little cottage attached to it, and the first keeper, Henry Guzenek, took his post the same year. One can only imagine how difficult it would be to be stuck in a dangerous remote place with no human contact. It was that living alone on that desolate island with no outside communications for extended periods of time that led to Guzenek going mad. He claimed to hear voices chanting, which is Breton for leave her. Each subsequent keeper faced the same issues, and many died. I think, Denise, in all the lighthouses that we've either visited or researched so far, this is the only one that it initially was started off as there was only going to be one lighthouse keeper there. Pretty much everywhere else, it always seemed like there was at least an assistant. Yeah, because they always had, in the light stations we've been to, they had Mm -hmm. the room for the assistant light keeper. So I'm not sure why they went with just a single one for this, because you have to think that this is such a treacherous place. You have got to have that light working. And if something happens to this guy, not even just talking about going mad, but if he gets sick or something, you need to have some kind of backup. You would think so, because, I mean, I can't even imagine whenever we talk about things like this, and I know that it's just a 
movie, but it always reminds me of The Shining and how just being so isolated caused Jack Nicholson's character to go mad. And so you can see just being out there and just hearing just the waves and no contact because, of course, there's no Wi-Fi and stuff back then. And it would be very terrifying because not only is this a very small, rocky outcropping with nothing really near it, but the waves, when they hit it, some of them could go up over the little cottage. So you would also be living with this feeling of, I'm going to die. Exactly. And then no human contact, nobody out there with you to even play cards with. And so you can see why he went mad. Well, because we were having this issue, not only with him, but with some of the other keepers that they had there. In 1893, it was decided by the authorities that two-man crews should operate the light and that keepers should only spend a maximum of one year at Tevenek. The hope was to keep these men from going nuts or killing themselves. It would seem that the keepers were never really alone before, though, based on the stories of hauntings. This Henry Guzanik, was he hearing these voices because he was going mad? Or did the voices drive him mad? Hmm, that's kind of for our listeners to decide. Yeah, it's kind of like the chicken before the egg. But apparently these people really did believe that he was hearing something and not just going crazy because what they did is the rock that was around this island, they started embedding crucifixes into it. And it was with the hope that this would help to exercise the ghosts. And they even called out a priest to perform an exorcism of the island. So that's how bad they thought it was out there. It wasn't just that men were losing their minds and seeing things. There was a true basis in superstition. To understand those beliefs, we need to look at a terrifying creature named the Anku. In the Celtic folklore of Brittany, the Anku is a death omen that collects the souls of the dead. It travels the lanes of Brittany, preying on unsuspecting individuals. This creature reveals itself in many forms. One of the more common is for the Anku, or king of the dead, to inhabit the last person to die in a certain area in a calendar year. So don't die on New Year's Eve. Because that probably would mean you're the last one dead. Okay, and I don't plan on planning my death, so I'll try to adhere to that little statement. Advice. (laughs) Advice. For the following year, he or she assumes the duty of calling for the dead. The other common depiction of the Anku is a tall, haggard figure with long white hair, usually skeletal in nature, with a revolving head able to see everyone, everywhere. It drives a spectral cart accompanied by two ghostly figures on foot and stops at the house of the one who's about to die. It knocks on the door, making a sound that is sometimes heard by the living, or it gives out a mournful wail like the Irish banshee. Sometimes it's reported to be seen as an apparition entering the house. It enlists the helps of its two ghost companions to load the dead person onto its cart. As one can see, the Anku is a powerful figure that dominates Breton folklore. When Christianity arrived in Brittany, the story of the Anku was amended, including St. Peter as a type of hero, blinding the Anku. The story as told by the website Mysterious Britain tells it this way. St. Peter came down to walk beside the Anku in his grim task. 
As the darkness grew, they passed by a farmer and his servant still working in the fields by the side of the lane. The creaking of the Anku's cart startled the farmer, who fell to his knees and hid his face from sight. The servant, however, continued to cut the hay, singing all the time in a strong, melodic voice. The Anku stopped the cart and shouted that the servant would be dead within eight days. But the servant kept on singing defiantly. At this challenge to authority, the Anku's eyes lit up like fire, and he readied himself to strike down the servant. But St. Peter jumped between the Anku and his prize, blessing the servant with long life and taking the fire from the Anku's eyes. Thus, the Anku was left blind and less able to strike down souls in the dark leafy lanes of Brittany. So it makes you wonder if the church coming in, particularly the Catholic church, if this was kind of their way of trying to push out the Celtic belief and saying, well, okay, so maybe there was an Anku, but he's not very powerful anymore because St. Peter took care of him. Exactly. Although it seems like the servant was doing a heck of a job. So maybe they should have looked at servitude rather than sainthood. Just saying. Yeah. Apparently happy servitude uh, saves your butt. So we have the first pair of keepers taking their post in 1893. And then one of them died unexpectedly. So apparently having two there doesn't help. (laughs) I guess not. Jeez. In 1897, it was decided that lighthouse keepers should let their wives accompany them to this formidable post. So the wives are going to be, I guess, more powerful. I don't know. Maybe the, it's the <laughs> female power now. We're going to be able to keep the spirits back. Yeah, girls rule. <laughs> <laughs> Girl power. This did not seem to solve the problem of death visiting the lighthouse. One keeper died, leaving his wife to salt his corpse until he could be collected. Can you imagine? It's bad enough that your husband has died, but now you've got to try to keep him from... Decomposing. <laughs> you got to keep the decomp away, and she's doing it with salt. And she's doing it on this isolated, rocky, craggy island with mm. all the waves and everything else that drives people mad. And obviously having to take over his duties, which we already know is trying to get oil to the top of the lighthouse, which is not easy. It's heavy. And uh, we couldn't find any reports about how long she had to stay here with just his corpse. But I can imagine it was probably a few months. Ay, ay, ay. The third keeper, a man named Melipur, was found dead in his bed. The fourth, Roberts, kept the light with his elderly father. One day, Roberts found his father dead. He had slit his throat with his shaving razor. Other tales of a keeper falling on his knife and of a child of a keeper dying have been shared but unconfirmed for many years. Louis and Marie Jacquette Quimier, along with their three children and a cow, spent a significant amount of time at the post. The family had no documented encounters with ghosts or deaths. Apparently, it's cow power. Cow cow power. Forget (laughs) girl power. Forget the exorcisms, the crucifixes. All you need is a cow. A watch cow, apparently. And I want to know how they got the cow over there and where did they put it? Because when you look at pictures of this, there's just not a whole lot of room out there. On other lighthouses, they would plant gardens and stuff, but there really is not a lot of room here. Maybe the cow slept in the house with them. Ooh, that'd be stinky. I guess that would keep death at bay. Woof. The weather has proved to be a bigger problem than the hauntings. The waves crashing against the rock here have brought many a ship to its bitter end. But they've also brought an end to the cottage on three occasions. It was rebuilt each time. Things came to a head when a horrible storm destroyed the wall of the living room while the last lighthouse keeper's wife was in the process of giving birth. It was decided that something had to be done, and the lighthouse was fully automated in 1910. And the lighthouse was basically abandoned. For over a hundred years, no keeper has resided at the lighthouse. 
In 2015, on the 140th anniversary of the building of Tefanik Lighthouse, the founder of the National Society for Heritage, Mark Pointed, announced he was planning to spend two months alone at Tefanik. He wanted to raise awareness for the restoration of France's forgotten lighthouses. Pointed's goal was to turn the lighthouse into an artist retreat. The lighthouse had no furnishings, so he would have to take the bare basics with him, and he said he would be living like a prisoner. He started a fund to help raise the money needed to restore the lighthouse. Pointed pointed out that he was not worried about the ghost tales because he did not believe in ghosts, and he figured he would keep madness at bay because he would have a telephone and internet communication with the mainland, something that the early keepers were denied. Due to bad weather, the 2015 project was delayed. Pointed is quoted as saying at that time, there's too much sea and we cannot dock or unload the material. A French newspaper reported the beginning of February 2016 that another attempt would be made on February 27th. There's little information about his stay on the island, but we did confirm that he spent two months on the island and apparently had no incidents of ghosts, hauntings, or anything else bad happening there. This really is one of France's forgotten lighthouses. Because when you put this in and try to do some research... Basically, all you get is the newspaper article about this guy going to spend two months there. It's everywhere, but it's the, it's it. This is the only story. There's, it, it amazes me that France doesn't have somewhere that they've got more of this information. So but, a lot of this is hearsay. We're not sure even how many of these stories are actually true because there was nothing to back it up. Yeah, and that is because like when you go to our lighthouses here in America, there's always like placards. You can read about the different people that stayed there. They have photographs, pictures. And so there's a lot of history and it's you can spend over an hour just learning about the people who live there and about the lighthouse, the production, damages to it and everything. And so it is funny that with things like Google and the Internet, we could find nothing on on the actual lighthouse out there. So like you just said, it, it truly is forgotten. Yeah, I put keepers names in, couldn't find anything on any of the keepers to even verify that these people actually were there. Of course, when you have no names, it's this keeper and his wife and this keeper and his wife. And when you don't have names, it's like, well, how do I know that that's actually true? Yes. And so this one was a very difficult one. But there's obviously something going on there because you don't have these stories come out for no reason at all. Right. And and just the pictures of it, it is so desolate out there. And it's it's beautiful. And it's like loneliness. That is very true. So this guy definitely put it on the map because people have started paying attention to it. And hopefully, I know that they've been working out something where they're trying to get uh, money to renovate it and such. And so hopefully they have some success with that and they're able to get some kind of renovation going on there. Of course, some people would say, well, why? Because I don't think there's any way you could run tours out there. It's basically something that you can photograph from a distance because even for them to try him to go out there for the two months, it was really hard for them to try to get out there. And but, when you look at it, that's why I asked you about the kayaks, because I'm like, this looks like a dangerous place to try to get to. But of course, you know that I really want to see it now. <laughs> <laughs> the Tevenik Lighthouse keeps watch over the ships in the sea. But is there something else keeping watch on the craggy island? Do the spirits of shipwrecked crews haunt the island? Are the ghosts of the dead keepers still doing their job in the afterlife? Does the King of the Dead reign here? Is Tevenik Lighthouse haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, all I know is I don't want the Anku coming to my house. They sound like nasty little things. Yep, and we already have little Princess Tiana. 
On our next episode, we're going to be heading to a location in California, Hotel Jeffrey, which is in Coulterville, California. This was suggested by our listener, Scott Stuller. So we're looking forward to bringing that one to you guys. We do have some reviews to share with you. And Denise, it's very exciting. Last episode, we had two reviews from New Zealand, which was a new country for us. Yes, so that was very cool. Well, we have another new country, Belgium. Yay, let's go Belgium. Yes, thank you to Belgium for our first review from there. And we know we have listeners from France. We've seen that come up in our stats and such. And you guys over in Japan, we'd love to hear from you as well. Actually, we'd love to hear from anybody anywhere in the world. So let us know you're out there. This is Yashvi1611. Amazing. Five stars. Love all the episodes. Thank you so much, Yashvi. We appreciate that. And then we got another review from the UK. This is Robert F87. Great mix of history and hauntings. Five stars. A hugely entertaining blend of history and the supernatural. Diane and Denise are great hosts with a chatty conversational storytelling style. Every episode is enjoyable and full of interesting facts. Thanks so much, Robert. We appreciate that. And then here in America, we have Oki Lane, an instant iPod replacer, five stars. If and when my iPod dies, this is one of the podcasts that makes me instantly replace said equipment. <laughs> well, that's good to know, Oki. Very much so. And Snoof 80, the podcast that makes my day, five stars. I love these ladies. The combo of fun and fright and their warm chemistry makes this an enjoyable and informative podcast. I found the podcast late in the game and devoured the episodes up like potato chips. Keep them coming. Look at that, Denise. You can't have just one. We're like chips. Yay. I love (laughs) potato chips. Thanks, Snoof. We want to thank all of you guys for joining us. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. Music on today's episode was by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producer, Sasha Wolf, and thanks to Heather Williams for raising her pledge amount. Check out the website at historygoesbump.com. Societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Ninth Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bump, Listen, The M Writing Podcast, Society 13, Rebuilding Society, one podcast at a time.